Well, good afternoon, everyone. As Jason already alluded to, I am going to be talking about love today. Now, this is certainly a topic that oftentimes behind the pulpit, when you hear someone saying, hey, we're going to talk about love, people, especially in reform camps, start to get a little squeamy just because of how much this idea and concept of love has been completely mangled in our culture today. You know, we hear talks all the time, love is love, that tautology that makes no sense at all. You hear people interpret love in a mushy sense, giving no definition at all to what they're talking about, not going to the scriptures at all to understand what it means. So people, a lot of times, shy away from talking about this idea, this concept, this spiritual fruit of love. Well, we can't do that because the Bible does talk about it. So we are going to talk about it today. But before we begin, let us first go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this time and opportunity that we now get to spend in your word. Lord, um, I ask that you may first and foremost equip me to speak the truth and only the truth behind this pulpit. Um, use me, in, 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 use me in, in, in a way, Lord, to speak accurately what your word teaches as it pertains to um, this spiritual fruit known as love. And I pray, God, that my words may edify all those who are hearing, whether it be here um, in this building or virtually, Lord. Convict all of us, Lord. Convict us. Edify us. Open our eyes. Open our ears, Lord, to grasp and understand this fruit of love. And above all, may you be glorified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, as I already mentioned, far too many pastors, unfortunately, have allowed for sin to grow rampant in their church because of a misunderstanding of love, because they were trying to love the person that's in sin. Their misunderstanding of this, understand, of this concept of sin has caused them to tolerate sin because they're just trying to love the person. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, you notice John is mentioning how the church and Thyatira was displaying love, yet they were also tolerating someone who was leading people astray into immorality. Revelation chapter 2, again, verses 18 through 29, listen. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her 
into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Tyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So clearly, we don't want our love to end up being something into which we are loving a person straight into the gates of hell. That being said, as I said, we, we can't avoid talking about this necessary fruit. When you look through the Bible, you will see that the topic of love is all over the place. You can't read your Bible without running into passages that talk about our love for God, our love for our families, our love for the church, our love for our neighbors, even our love for our enemies. So, we're going to focus on that fruit today. We're going to look at what love is and how love manifests itself, especially and particularly within the church. We're going to see how without this fruit displaying itself, any other gift a person may have is meaningless. We're going to talk about how this fruit is absolutely necessary for any church to remain strong and vibrant rather than cold and lifeless. Now, to talk about that, we're going to, of course, focus on the chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But before we go there, I think it's important that we define our terms. And then, you know, Jason really alluded to how we're to understand love. Because again, as he mentioned, there is a misunderstanding in regards to love. It's, it's interpreted as kind of gushy, lovey, like this feeling in your tummy that you just can't explain. One day you just wake up and then all of a sudden, man, I feel something different. And then, oh man, that must be love. Uh, and listen, I, I, I remember that's how back in the day I used to assume that that love was. In my prior to coming to Christ, you know, I thought, oh man, I have this weird feeling for this other person. It must be love now. No, yeah, not at all. To understand love, we must go to the Bible and see what the Bible tells us in regards to love. And then when we look at what the scriptures say, to put it plainly, what it tells us is that love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in which a person is actively keeping God's law towards another person, outwardly and inwardly. That's what love is. It's funny, Jason already read this passage, but well, I'm going to read it to you again so that you don't forget. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You hear that? Love is the fulfillment of the law. How do you love someone? By keeping God's law towards them. It's as simple as that. Now, that might not make for a great Disney movie. That might not make for a great Hallmark movie. But then that does make for a biblical understanding of what love is. 
what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 40. Paul reiterates in this passage that to love our neighbor as ourselves is to keep God's commandments towards them. So if you want to know how to truly love, you must know and keep God's commandments towards them. It's not acting in a warm and fuzzy way, but it's actively keeping the commandments towards them. If you're not doing that, then you're not loving them. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. Did you hear that? By this we know that we love the children of God. Not by saying sweet things to them in their ear. But when we love God and we observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And then in 2 John 5 through 6. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Now, I am not saying that love is absent of feeling, because it's not. But true love, however, isn't just merely led by feelings. See, much too often, people mistake love for either lust or attraction. But see, when you mistake love for lust or attraction, unfortunately, first and foremost, if that's your idea of love, when that attraction or that lust fades away, first and foremost, oh, I fell out of love. Now, all of a sudden, those people whom you said that you love, you don't love anymore because what once attracted you to them no longer is attracting you to them anymore. And then also, too, if that's your understanding or idea of love, as Jason alluded to, pretty soon you may violate God in order to, quote unquote, love that person. Now, love is something that we are commanded to do by God. We don't just fall into it. We're commanded to. It's not an option for us as believers. John 15, verses 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I love you. He didn't say, I want you to fall in love. Whoever you fall in love with, that's it. No. Hey, I'm commanding you. You love one another. Seven, verse 17 in John 15. This I command you, that you love one another. Before Jesus Christ was betrayed and crucified, he tells his disciples to love one another. Now, that command was not merely for those disciples, but for anyone who calls themselves a brother or sister in Christ. If we are in Christ, guess what? We ought to love one another. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see that? We are to walk in love. Now, in me talking about love, we can go a number of different ways, but I am going to spend this time really focusing on love as it pertains to the church itself, brothers and sisters within the faith. Because far too often, we don't truly understand and grasp that idea and concept of loving one another and really what that entails and why we are to do it. It's easy, oftentimes, to love. It's easy to love your wife or your husband. It's easy to love your children. It's easy to love people that you grew up with. 
But sometimes it can be very, very difficult to love other brothers and sisters within the faith whom maybe you never grew up with. You have different likes and traits and different things like that. And may, you may not have the same um, common interests or whatnot. But we are commanded to, to love, in particular, those within the body of Christ. Well, why? Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. So as, th so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Never forget, when Paul wrote this letter, um, the Colossians, to the church in Colossae, you had two very different groups of people who were coming together as one body. You had those who were Jews and were accustomed to those Jewish practices. And then you had those who were Gentiles who were accustomed to those practices. There were going to be clashes regarding things that the Jews felt. Yeah, you know what? I'm not that comfortable with that. That, uh, that seems a little weird or odd. And there were going to be things that the Gentiles were going to be uncomfortable with. If there was this constant cynicism and suspicion regarding one another, rather than learning to grow together, the church was going to be torn apart before it could even really grow. So Paul tells them to put on love which includes those traits that he mentions that I said um, in verse 12, the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, so that those unimportant issues don't tear them apart. See, there was one common truth that they were all united around. Never forget Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for their sins as is revealed in the scriptures. That's the one foundation we sing to him from time to time. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our rock. That is what they're united around. And see, those other things aren't as ultimate as that and must not supplant what is ultimate. The only time that you ever really see Paul really talk about separation from someone isn't for those things that aren't that important, but for things that um, impact the gospel. You know, Jason preached a few weeks ago on Romans chapter 16 to bring you to, um, to bring um, remembrance to your mind. Romans 16 verses 17 through 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And then in Galatians 1, verse 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, he is to be a curse. As we have said before, so again I say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be a curse. See, whenever something was impacting the gospel, that was when that line was drawn. But then when that wasn't the case, then the understanding in, in, of Loving one another became tantamount so that those little things don't become bigger than the ultimate thing itself. And because 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is what is ultimate. Because Jesus Christ is our one foundation, we must always stand fixed on that. And pursuing love with our brothers and sisters in the faith ensures that other things that do not compromise the gospel does not become the reason for separation. Love bears with those things for the sake of the gospel itself. Now, all that being said, what I want to do now is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at the first seven verses of this passage. Because in it, we're going to see a number of different things. We're going to see some of those properties of love, and then we're going to see why love is so necessary. So again, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, before Paul starts detailing some of the different properties of love, starting in verse 4, you know, he makes an interesting point that I do not want for us to miss. You see, Paul is talking to a church, never forget, in um, 1 Corinthians, that has a lot of mess going on. This is a corrective epistle. You know, there was a lot of prideful boasting that was going on in this church. There was egregious sexual sin taking place. They were treating the Holy Supper as just a common meal. They were suing other saints. They did not understand the resurrection. One of the messes that Paul had to deal with was their understanding of the spiritual gifts. You know, the showy gifts of tongues and prophecy were being desired by many within the church. Now, if you've ever been to a charismatic church, it's not hard to see why those gifts oftentimes can be coveted. You know, the truly spiritual people are going to be the ones in those churches that can speak in tongues or that can give vivid prophecies or even heal people. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter before, reminds the church that they are all part of one body and within the one body are different members. Not everybody in the church and the body possesses the same gifts and abilities, but all are vital for the building up of the church. Even though every member would not have the same gifts, Paul lets them know of one fruit that they all ought to be pursuing, which is love. Now, what's interesting is why he asks for them to pursue love. Basically, to summarize, he says, if you're absent of love, any other of these spiritual gifts that you're pursuing is meaningless. I mean, let's take a look at those uh, the first three verses in 1 Corinthians 13 again. He says, if I speak with the tongues of, of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I can talk all the different languages in the world, but if I don't have love, 
I'm making just a whole bunch of annoying noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, so I know it all, I've been able to figure out all the deep things. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, guess what? I have nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, so I become a martyr, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Notice, these aren't minor things that Paul is noting here. Now, Paul is being hyperbolic when he is speaking. We have to note that. But he is using the hyperbole to make a point. It doesn't matter, again, that you're able to speak all these different languages. Without love, again, you just sound like a, a toddler just banging a drumstick on a cymbal. It's just annoying and irritating. No matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter that you're the most learned person in the world and have figured out every doctrinal point to perfection. If you have love, it doesn't profit you anything. It doesn't matter that you're so giving that you sell all your goods and give it all away to charities, but without love, it does not benefit you at all. Now, none of the things that Paul mentions here are bad in and of themselves. Now, although the gifts of tongues have ceased, there was nothing wrong, especially in that time, with speaking in tongues. There is nothing wrong with being able to know all the deep truths contained in scriptures. Matter of fact, I would argue that Christians would want to search the scriptures, know their theology, and understand it intimately. There is certainly nothing wrong with giving to the poor. Yet Paul says if love is absent, it is meaningless. John Calvin, commentating on this passage, puts it in this way. The main truth in the passage is this. That as love is the only rule of our actions and the only means of regulating the right use of the gifts of God, nothing in the absence of it is approved of by God, however magnificent it may be in the estimation of men. For where it is wanting or lacking, in other words, the beauty of all virtues is mere tinsel, is empty sound, is not worth a straw, nay, more. It is offensive and disgusting. So apart from this very important fruit of love, even great gifts don't profit anything. So while you ought to be learned in the scriptures, charitable to those in need, what you ought to be directing yourself to, along with all of that, is love, is that fruit of love. Apart from love, these gifts can start to build up a person with pride. All of a sudden, what was meant to be God-glorifying turns into an opportunity for people to praise us. I love what Matthew Henry says in regards to this as well. He says, a clear and deep head is of no signification, 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 I think I said that right, without a benevolent and charitable heart. It is not great knowledge that God sets a value upon, but true and hearty devotion and love. And then he goes on to say, if we leave charity out of religion or love, the most costly services will be of no avail to us. If we give away all we have while we withhold the heart from God, it will not profit. So again, we see the importance and necessity of pursuing love as we pursue all these other things as well. Now, let's look at how Paul talks about love, the different properties within love. The first that he says in verse four is that love is patient. Now, Older translations, like the King James and the Geneva, I believe, they'll use the word long-suffering. Now, if we were to look 
and a definition in regards to, to patient. So obviously, you know, all of us here, we're, we're fans of, you know, the, the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. And actually on there, they have a pretty good definition of patient. They find it in this way. Having the quality of enduring evils without murmuring or fretfulness. Sustaining afflictions of body or mind with fortitude, calmness, or Christian submission to the divine will. They also say this, not easily provoked. Calm under the sufferance of injuries or offenses. Not revengeful. So now this idea of love, being patient, is important, especially within the body of Christ. Because as Christians, we don't all arrive at the same place at the same time. And what I mean by that is this, that, you know, some Christians, when they come to faith, you know, it's like God opened up their mind to quickly understand immediately many deep theological truths. Now, the Christians, let's say it just takes some time for them to grasp certain ideas and concepts. On top of that, we all come from different walks of life. Therefore, there's going to be different customs and practices that we may be used to or comfortable with that another person within the body may look at differently. And it can be difficult oftentimes for a believer to patiently bear with another believer if they believe they're doing things or saying things that they've come to understand a different way years ago. But a person who is exercising love will be patient with all brothers and sisters in the faith as they work out their salvation and work through those different areas in their life. They will not blow up at the first sign of offense or perceived slight. Now, this is important because so often our lack of patience with another person can be what drives another person away. And in order for peace to be maintained, patience must be present. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Don't forget, I mentioned it earlier, Jews and Gentiles, they've come together as one. And there were undoubtedly differences that may have ruffled some feathers. But a love that is patient will learn how to tolerate those things that are not detrimental, keyword, to the gospel. Instead of quickly casting off, it will learn to endure with and pray for that person. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. But we, requ- but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So love, first and foremost, must be patient, or love is patient. But then Paul goes on to say that love is kind. Now, to be kind is to be disposed towards doing good to others, rather than waiting for good to be done to them, to ourselves, A person who is loving is seeking to do good towards someone else. They are desiring to be a blessing rather than just receive one. 
Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, in this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, that emphasizes the unity that all Christians are to have and how they are to walk with other Christians, Paul makes the important point that Christians are to be kind towards each other. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9, Peter says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humbled in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for that very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. See, it might be tempting to want to wait for others to extend kindness first so that we react with kindness ourselves. But the person who is loving is kind regardless of how they are first treated. And when you're doing that and being kind towards one another, you know what? We're actually emulating the type of kindness that God extended towards us. Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You hear that? God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Now, have you ever just sat and thought about your own condition prior to coming to Christ? I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were still in sin, while we were still evil, while we were still ungrateful ourselves, God extended his mercy towards us. See, God wasn't like, well, you be kind to me and then I'll be kind to you. No. God, regardless of how we treated him, was kind to us. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. And in that same way, we are to love others by being kind to them, whether they deserve it or not, as hard, trust me, as that can be from time to time, because quite frankly, sometimes people make it hard to be kind towards them. But if we're going to truly love in the biblical sense, then we must be kind. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, Love is not jealous. Most translations would say love does not envy. The Apostle James writes in James 4, verses 1 through 2, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do you get mad? When a person receives a blessing from God, do you wish that you had what they had instead of praising God, that he gave them what they have? Instead of celebrating with them on their gifts, do you secretly curse them? A person who loves does not envy. Other people's blessings aren't perceived as their curses. When a person starts to become envious of people in the church, it's going to be very hard for them to display any form of kindness whatsoever towards them. Quite frankly, it's going to be very hard for problems not to arise, which ultimately causes friction. Listen, 
Every family here has some blessing that another family does not. Some are wealthier than others. Some are healthier than others. Some may be more spiritually advanced, more theologically sound than others. But if we begin to get upset over how God chooses to bless some families over others, pretty soon, you know what will happen? There will be gossiping. Pretty soon there will be bickering. Pretty soon there will be fracturing. John Calvin, again, commenting on this passage, he says, Hence, where envy reigns, where everyone is desirous to be the first or to appear so, love there has no place. Now, along that same line of, of envy, we also have what he says here, and that love doesn't brag and is not arrogant. Now, at the heart of envy is pride. At the heart of arrogance also is pride. So one thing that is definitely clear is that love is not prideful. Love and pride do not go together. Now, to display pride is to puff yourself up as somebody before men and God. To be prideful is to go about as though you are what the world needs. I am needed. If it wasn't for your gifts and you, how could the world go on? When you achieve some form of success, the glory, it doesn't go to God, but it goes to you. When you are prideful, you are selfish. You want things done your way. It's your way or no way at all. When you are prideful, you refuse to look out for the interests of others, but only of yourself. You are the most important person. So therefore, the church and the world is supposed to cater to you and to your needs. You have become the God that the church is supposed to serve. Now, the body of Christ cannot function well when there are competing gods because, as Jason alluded to, there is only one God. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Rather than puff yourself up as though you are somebody, you are, we are all, to humble ourselves. Philippians 2 verses 3 to 4, Paul writes, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, when humbling ourselves in this way, all we're doing is just following the example of Christ. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 5 through 11, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So rather than being prideful, love is humble, and we have our example in Jesus Christ on how to emulate that. And then Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, looking at verse 5, that love does not act unbecomingly. Love isn't rude. It doesn't say things in an inappropriate or an unnecessarily offensive way. Love does not act in an unnecessarily offensive way. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 25, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, some people may think, but it's not my job to control how another person gets offended. And listen, I, I am going to admit we live in a hypersensitive culture and everything is a microaggression. Everything gets perceived nowadays as rude or inappropriate. You can sneeze the wrong way and a person gets offended. So I get it. But that being said, we must not allow other people's hypersensitivity to be an excuse for our insensitivity. Proverbs 12 verse 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So, you know, some people, they're, they're like, I'm going to tell it like it is. And then they use that as an excuse to be all kinds of rude towards another person. There's nothing wrong with telling it like it is. But then we must let our speech be gracious as though seasoned with salt as well. If we are to look out for the interests of others, as Paul says in Philippians, then we ought to be able to consider our actions in light of our brothers and sisters. See, we don't want to be careless with our words or our actions to unnecessarily offend others because oftentimes once a person is offended, it's hard to win them over. Solomon writes in Proverbs 18 verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. John Gill, commenting on this passage, he says, love doth not behave itself unseemly by using either unbecoming words or doing indecent actions. For a man unprincipled with this grace will be careful that no filthy and corrupt communication proceed out of his mouth, which may offend pious ears, and that he uses no ridiculous and ludicrous gestures which may expose himself and grieve the saints. So love isn't rude. And then love, he goes on to say, does not seek its own. Now, this ties back with the whole understanding of love isn't prideful. You know, when you make something all about you, everyone else must conform their lives to fit your needs. The church is centered around you. Your family has to be centered around you. Even worship needs to be centered around you. I got to feel good. See, the Christian who loves does not think in this way. They don't put themselves first. Their first thought is, one, how can they please God? And two, how can they love their brother? Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's brothers and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. See, Paul doesn't say, let other people bear your burdens, but rather you, you Christian, you bear with another's burdens. Don't look out for yourself or for someone else. When you are truly loving someone else, you aren't asking everybody else to take care of your needs, but you are seeking to take care of others' needs. Romans 12, verse 10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preface, preference to one another in honor. So you're not seeking your own, you're humbling yourself. And then Paul says here, Love is not provoked. Now, I'm glad that he mentions this in the same passage that he talks about love not acting unbecomingly and being rude. Because while on the one hand, we have to be mindful not to be rude or act in a way to offend someone. On the other hand, you know, a person can't just be easily provoked. 
Have you ever met a person where every little thing you do or say just gets them upset? You sneeze, again, the wrong way. And they're like, why'd you sneeze that way? Uh, yeah, I didn't really like how you sneezed. You could have sneezed in a more appropriate way. A person doesn't perfectly articulate their thoughts. And all of a sudden is, why are you talking so rude? Why are you talking that way? See, a person with that attitude makes everyone else have to walk on eggshells. Every little thing sets them off. A person who is acting in this way has little to no love in their hearts because love does not get provoked at every little offense. There cannot be peace and unity where a person is always ready to go to war with someone else at the slightest offense. James 1 verses 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In order to be slow to anger, you must be one who is not quick to get upset at every little thing. You can't get offended easily. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says, where the fire of love is kept in, the flames of wrath will not easily kindle, nor long keep burning. Proverbs 20 verse Three, Solomon says, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Do you find yourself always getting angry with someone? Do you find that you seem to get irritated rather quickly? Are other people always provoking you to anger? You need to check your hearts then, because the problem may not be those people. The problem might be you. After Paul talks about that love is provoked, he goes on to say this again in verse five. Love thinks no evil. Right alongside with not being easily provoked, a person who loves thinks no evil. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I think there's two ways that we can look at, 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 at that, two aspects that he's getting at here. From one aspect, what he means is that a person who loves will not automatically assume the worst regarding a person's actions. If a person does or says something, they're not automatically interpreting it in a negative light. A person who is constantly thinking evil regarding people and their actions, especially within the church, they create issues and schisms where there is none. They're going to turn little nuances into giant problems. Again, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of first, Corinthian, of, of first century Christians. Because again, remember, the church at that time was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who grew up with different practices. Now, imagine as a Jewish convert to Christianity, you're going into your Gentile Christian's brother's home and you're looking around. Chances are you might notice some things that might make you uncomfortable at first glance. They may prepare something that, again, you, you, you realize, okay, maybe it's, it's, it's okay to eat, but you know, you're still not comfortable seeing just you know, a dead pig and being asked to eat it or whatnot. You might still get a little bit of shivers seeing people wearing mixed cloths and stuff like that. You haven't worked through these things. It might make you uncomfortable. And without the exercise of love, you can easily start to have sinister thoughts about the motivation of that other Christian. Huh, are they really Christian? Why are they doing this stuff here? 
I know I, I don't like to do this. They must be doing it because they're wicked. Soon enough, whatever progress of unity that was being had, going back again to putting yourself in that um, time frame between the Christian Jew and the Christian Gentile is lost over, over those thoughts. See, love keeps a person from allowing that little kernel of a lie to grow in their minds into this giant tree. You know what? Our thoughts oftentimes can be the thing that destroys our relationships with other people and not their actual actions. If you allow it, your suspicious thoughts about another person can start to turn into reality in your mind. Pretty soon, you are treating that person based off of the lie that you chose to believe and allowed to be cemented in your mind. So a Christian who loves thinks no evil. It doesn't allow for that thought to stay rude and cemented, to now cause friction, to now cause them to think in such a heinous life. The other aspect of what I think Paul is getting at here is that love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, which is actually how the New American Standard renders this passage. Along with not thinking in an evil way, a person does not dwell on the mistakes of others. See, love towards others does not keep tabs of every little slight a person does to you. It chooses oftentimes to overlook those faults rather than consistently pointing it out. Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 19, verse 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 17, verse 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter, tells other people about it, separates intimate friends. Now, this, these passages are not trying to say that if a person is committing gross and heinous sins, immoral acts, that you just ignore it in the name of love. No. And Paul's going to get to that later. But Paul, matter of fact, we see Paul definitely not getting to that point when he says in Galatians 6 verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we know he's not talking about excusing sin, but rather what those passages in Proverbs are saying is that a Christian understands that there are some things that are best to overlook and constantly point out. You know, some things we consider sins sometimes aren't actually sins, but rather preferences that we have. So often a person does something that we may not prefer, but we treat it as though it is a sin. Sometimes a person accidentally misspeaks. Sometimes a person may make a misstep or whatnot, and we ought not to pounce on that. Be gracious enough to overlook and forgive. Again, Matthew Henry comments on this passage in this way. It says, Love cherishes no malice, nor gives way to revenge, so some understand it. It is not soon nor long angry. It is never mis mischievous, nor inclined to revenge. It does not suspect evil of others. It does not reason out evil, charge guilt upon them by inference and innuendo when nothing of this sort appears open. True love is not apt to be jealous and suspicious. It will hide faults that appear and draw a veil over them instead of hunting and raking out those that lie covered and concealed. It will never indulge suspicion without proofs. 
but will rather incline to darken and disbelieve evidence against the person it affects. It will hardly give into an ill opinion of another, and it will do it with regret and reluctance when the evidence cannot be resisted. Hence, it will never be forward to suspect ill and reason itself into a bad opinion upon mere appearances, nor give way to suspicion without any. It will not make the worst construction of things, but put the best face, face that it can on circumstances that have no good appearance. End quote. I mean, how many blow-ups could have been avoided by merely overlooking an offense? How many fights and schisms could have never happened had one person chosen to avoid a fight rather than pick a fight? How many destroyed homes and churches could have never happened if a person practiced love towards someone else rather than hate? So well, love thinks no evil nor does it take into account a wrong suffered. But then Paul says this in verse six, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And I'm glad that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, placed this right after the previous point, because quite frankly, I could easily see people using the previous point to completely excuse all sins, quote unquote, in the name of love. And we know we can't do that. Paul wants to make it clear that true love and evil do not mix. It can if it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love does not rejoice with anything that is unrighteous. Romans 12 verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Many people have chosen to celebrate sin rather than hate it. Our culture is a culture, unfortunately, that celebrates every form of sin known to man. True love hates what is evil and loves what is good. Paul is making it perfectly clear in this passage that love and truth are tied together. See, we must never let our love be one in which we are tolerating wickedness. Our unity as the body of Christ is always tied to the truth of the gospel. If the gospel is a lie, then our union is meaningless. Therefore, we must never forsake the truth for the sake of unity. Love rejoices with the truth. While we ought to overlook minor offenses done to us, we must never praise wickedness and forsake truth. If your version of love does that, forsakes truth in the name of love, then guess what? You don't actually have love. Love is not independent of truth, but it rejoices with it. Then Paul goes on to say in verse seven, love bears all things. You know, as Christians, we are all fighting the good fight together. And as and because we are, we ought to be able to bear with one another. A person sins against you and they ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. God forgave you much more and much worse of much more and much worse sins than whatever little fault someone else did to you. Much in the same way that you don't want to be cast out immediately when you stumble, don't immediately cast out another brother. First, 
1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's not what hate does. Hate tries to dig up every little sin. Proverbs 16, verse 27, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. So love bears all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Now, when Paul is saying that love believes all things and hopes all things, Paul is not saying that love is gullible or that love is naive. Rather, his point is to say that those things that are positive and good about someone is what a loving person is quick to always believe. So often you find out how a person really feels about someone, but by what report about that person that they're quick to receive. If a person hears a negative report about someone and they are quick to be like, you know what, man, I knew that person was shady. I, I never trusted that person. Chances are they're not acting out in love. However, if a person is more so quick to be like, you know what, I hear what you're saying. Man, that sounds more like a whole bunch of assertions. You know, I, I don't know that person to be that way. So honestly, until I hear some corroborating evidence or some more witnesses, I'm not going to just accept that. And you know what? Sometimes we as Christians can be the worst when it comes to this. We can be so quick to entertain negative news about someone if it justifies our negative thoughts about that person to begin with. I mean, you have so-called Christian discernment websites, which is nothing more than slander posing as discernment. You have so-called Christians who would rather believe the worst accusation made against a person than something that's somewhat positive about that same person. Christians, we must avoid this at all costs, lest that fractures the church. And then finally, Paul says, love endures all things. Similar to bearing all things, Love suffers long with a brother or sister. Now, this ties in with patience. Because if you love someone, then you're patient with them. And you're patient, if you're patient with them, then you're going to be able to endure with them. Again, this isn't tolerating sin or celebrating sin. Rather, this is a fighting with that person against their sin. This is a willingness to love that person in the best of times and in the worst of times, in the hills and in the valleys. How often have we given up on people too quickly because we were impatient and unwilling to endure? You know what? That person's just a heretic. It's going to hell anyway. You know what? Now she'll never change. Have we forgotten how much God has endured with us? How many times do we go to God ourselves, time after time after time again, begging for forgiveness when we sin? And yet God, because of his steadfast love for us, never discards us. God's love endures forever. If God can endure with us, how much more are we to endure with those other saints that Christ died for? Love endures all things. You know, John, as I bring all of this to a close, John writes in John 13, verses 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, 
that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, please don't take lightly what I'm telling you today. Jesus said that others will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. But when we fight with each other, are impatient with each other, refuse to bear with one another, receive false allegations against one another, think evil of one another, are envious of one another, unkind to one another, rude with one another, we are not loving one another. We are falling right into the hands of Satan who wants to see the church divided. It doesn't matter, like Paul said, that you have all the greatest spiritual gifts in the world. You can speak in a million languages. You can know all that there is to know about prophecies and types and all of that. You can give all that you own to the poor without love. You have nothing. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to be charitable. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to understand our theology. It doesn't. It does mean that in the pursuit of those things, we are and must always be pursuing love at all times. Knowledge apart from love produces arrogance. Giving apart from love produces self-righteousness. And there will come a point in time in which there will not be a need to give to the poor anymore because in the new heavens and new earth, there will not be any more poor. There will come a point in time where we don't need the theological books anymore because we will see our Savior face to face and know him as he is and get to talk to him. But there will never be a time in which we will not be loving anymore. When all else ends, love continues forever. Therefore, being that this is the case, we must always be pursuing love with one another. Saints, Christians, love one another. Let us go now to the Lord our God in prayer.